Hey everyone, it's Jaime Alejandro and this is the Arts Calling Podcast where I have informal conversations with independent creatives from all walks of life in the literary, visual, and performing arts. We have a tremendous conversation lined up for you today, but before I get to it, I just want to share two things very quickly. Number one, the email is ready to go. That is artscallingpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to share some thoughts about the episodes that you're listening to, if you have any thoughts or grievances about uh, the way that I'm asking questions, I'd love to hear it. Love to hear your thoughts. Maybe we can connect that way. Your feedback is always welcome. And number two, I want to take this intro space to do a couple of shout outs and share some updates about friends of the show, people who are doing phenomenal work, whether it's podcasting or they're releasing a new project and we don't get the chance to talk. This is where our shout outs are going to take place. This week, I'm excited to tell you about Switchyard. Award-winning editor, journalist, and author Ted Genoways hosts Switchyard, a literary magazine podcast featuring eye-opening essays, moving fiction, soul-stirring poetry, and honest, thought-provoking conversation. Guests include graphic novelist Art Spiegelman, poet Natasha Trethewey, Maya Kobabe, and more. You can find Switchyard on all major podcast platforms. This is a literary podcast you definitely want to add to your rotation. Now this week, I'm very excited to be arts calling Elizabeth M. Castillo. About Elizabeth, she is a British Mauritian poet, writer, and indie press promoter, and a two-time Pushcart Prize nominee. She lives in Paris with her family and two cats, where she writes different things in different languages under different pen names. Her writing has been published internationally, and her bilingual debut, Cajoncito, is on sale now. Her chapbook, Not Quite an Ocean, is available now from Nine Pence Press. With that said, let's give her a call. Hello, is anybody there? Hi. Hello, hello. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm very thrilled to get to chat with you, uh, a world poet in many ways, uh, but that, that seems a bit reductive too, because there's just so many angles that you, uh, that you take with your work and, and the way that you go about your life. So how is it going over there in your neck of the woods? Thank you, Jaime. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm in Paris, very hot, sweltering let's drag on the floor and pretend to be slugs Paris. Um, but no, things are going good. I've just, my book has been out, my latest pamphlet, Not Quite an Ocean, for just over a month, no, two months now, gosh. Um, and I've been promoting it like crazy. So there's, at the moment, I'm in that kind of dip that we have as indie creatives where we go, 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 and then we, you know, we need to recover a little bit, I think, from all our efforts. Yeah, I was going to ask you how the uh, the marketing circuit has been, how the promotion has been of, of the book. It's been um, it's been a very enjoyable process, as you know, so no one is confused as an indie writer. It's pretty much yourself doing it all. <laughs> there's no publicist. There's none of these things. But thankfully, the indie writing community, particularly the poetry community and uh, I'd say short fiction sort of community are so supportive. They're very, I think we're really tired of things being gate kept in literature. So everyone is very open to help, to let you have a favor, to boost you on social media, to put you on a podcast. So it's been a lot of hard work, 
Um, I knew it would be, but I was happy to do it. And um, I definitely have learned a lot in the process. Um, there's definitely ways of getting our indie books out there that are successful. But I think that perhaps there's not too many resources out there to help us do it. So um, I will actually be working, if I can just plug that, I will actually yeah. be working on some workshops on how to promote indie work uh, probably next year, mm. um, how to promote your books, your podcast, whatever it is you have going on um, in a way that is sustainable for us indie artists, because we need to help each other. I mean, we are a community, you know what I mean? What we put out there is what we're going to give back. So that's really what I've found. A lot of the people who actually helped me promote the book were people that I've promoted in some sometimes tiny way in the past, just by, you know, posting a picture of their book and saying, oh, I love this or leaving them a great review or whatever. And in turn, when I came back saying, do you mind terribly featuring this on your, <laughs> you know, next blog post or something? They were like, yeah, of course. So that's what's really magical about this community. I think I don't think that it exists. I also write novels and I write children's literature under different pen names. And I must say that neither of those communities are anywhere half as nice as my poetry people. I must say they are just, it's such a lovely, you know what I mean? Family community. Yeah. It, it's a real community, modern yeah. community. Yeah. And I've really been taken with Twitter of all places. And I've said this countless times on the podcast. The reason this podcast exists is because of Twitter. And, and for whatever reason, mm -hmm. there's just this magical convergence there, especially when it comes to poets and writers. And, you know, you, you kind of get is. me thinking in various directions about the things that you've done. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that you're talking about sharing some of that knowledge about marketing and really the most difficult part yeah. of this creative process. But if we could backtrack for just a moment, uh, because that, that set the stage yes, just yes. well. <laughs> I, I'm very curious about Mauritius and your life mm -hmm. in, the, in the early beginning, because you, you have such a fascinating um, origin that it would be nice to, mm -hmm. to kind of recollect some of those things. Can you remember and maybe share a few thoughts about Mauritius, which seems to be the beginning, right, for you? Not really. Um, not really. Before Mauritius was the Congo, I was actually born there in Zaire. There's not that many. There's not uh, that many memories of that. Um, but yeah, I was born in. I was born in. Well, in London, but my parents were living in the Congo. So at the month old, I was back in Zaire, um, and then I was in London for a bit. And then my formative years have been spent in Mauritius. But my parents have always been travelers. My family moved around. My father for business, but both my parents were. Mauritian, but immigrants to English-speaking countries. My father grew up in South Africa and my mother in London. So already as Mauritians, we weren't particularly Mauritian in that French mm. or Creole wasn't our first language. Um, and both my parents sort of raised us with a very much a citizen of the world kind of upbringing. Um, and I suppose that's always been a, a, a cornerstone of my identity, even though it's not much of a cornerstone, because when it comes down to it, when you fit in everywhere and nowhere, it's a kind of tricky act to live through your, you know, throughout your life, especially when you go on to choose a career, choose a partner, raise your children. All of these questions of who you are and what your identity is come in, comes into play. But Mauritius itself is where I spent my formative years, very small tropical island. Uh, Paradise Island, number one tourist destination in the world for many, many years. Mm. Beautiful place. I mean, definitely, if you get a chance, go and see it. Um, so a very interesting place because it's a place that had no native population. So everybody on that island is there purely because of uh, colonial caprice is, are oh, there wow. because they were either settlers, Europeans, slaves, indentured laborers. 
And it's fascinating because all of the places that I've I've been to in the Americas, where there are a lot of similarities, obviously the suffering of the colony is very. There's a lot of similar symptoms all over, you know, all over the globe. But the lack of having a native population is a very interesting one because it literally means that it is a nation of people who have absolutely no roots. The vast majority of them, um, which which is very, I think, which has an impact on how they see themselves. Um, how the colony becomes so central to their identity for the little good and for worse, for example, um, someone who will only speak Creole, the complexes that that will give them their internalized racism against themselves and people like themselves. And that's actually a subject that I explore a lot. My parents, even though they were educated people, um, never taught me Creole because to this day, they're like, well, why, what would it, what purpose would it have served you, Lizzie, in your life? And um, to a greater extent, my grandmother, uh, when I would speak even a word of Creole at the table, she'd chuck a fork down the table at me because we didn't speak that slave vulgar language in the house. Um, so it's a very interesting background to have as myself. And I, I, I read, maybe that's why I also relate to a lot of, because there's a very, very strong voices coming out of Mexican writers in America who have that feeling of, yes, we're Mexican, yes, we speak Spanish, but we're not Mexican enough. When we go visit yeah. our maybe <laughs> extended family back in Mexico, oh, right. we feel such, you know, we feel so white, <laughs> we feel like like gringos or whatever. And I relate to that because it's like, yeah, you're you're super Mauritian when you're not in Mauritius, but when you're in Mauritius, you're not Mauritian enough. And in fact, this wonderful Nigerian writer wrote a very short poem called Diaspora Blues, where she said, and it's the same thing of Nigerian, uh, there's a big Nigerian diaspora in the UK, obviously, um, where she said, so here you are, something, something, too foreign for here, too foreign for home. And that's, that's exactly it. That represents everything. That is such a heartbreaking it is a personal tragedy that that goes about, you know, from here to there. And the way you were describing uh, a lot of Mexican poets or poets who were a little bit Mexican, a little bit from somewhere else really mm. articulates that that very well, too, for me, because I'm pretty white, I guess, by by some Mexican standards, but also really, yeah. really brown by Wyoming standards, American. which is like the cowboy state over here. Um, yeah. But the, this kind of leads me to to think about something in, in that your relationship to cultures almost uncouples you from that and then perhaps allows the the idea of nature and the world itself to become a greater home. Do you feel like there was some kind of realization, uh, you know, when you were that young about about finding a greater home in the world through through the work that you're doing? Because there are a lot of there's a lot of subject matter in your work that is that is more about, mm. in particular, the ocean, which is, you know, you mm. do a phenomenal job, you know, with that particular subject. But do you feel like the the roots of finding nature as your home, do you, did mm -hmm. you feel that that was an early impulse or was that something that was more no. intellectual later on and then you found through writing? It was you know, it wasn't it wasn't any of those things, but that's an excellent question. It was not an early impulse because I think the earliest impulse was confusion. I remember my mother, and then I found out because my mother was, we're quite fair skinned, even though we're mixed race, just, you know, that happens in families. Um, there's always one who's really pale and one who's really dark. Um, and, and so my mother in the seventies in London was picked on and bullied for being, um, they use a horrible slur, but Indian Pakistani, even though she wasn't, she was Mauritian. And so she grew up with this huge, um, fear 
of anyone labeling her children anything. And so she never, in a desire to protect us, told us that we were mixed race. And so we grew up and it's only when we came to Mauritius, a very small island, small mind mentality where people were like, what are you? You're yeah, white, yeah, yeah. black, you know? And I remember coming home and in fact, I've written a piece of short fiction about it, coming home and being like, mommy, what am I, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, and as much as the, the, she can say, it's not what matters, the, the inside, not the outside, whatever, whatever. When you're faced with the reality of it and you're looking at the world around you, you're still like, mm, something I'm not being told, you know? So if anything, as a child, it was confusion. But how it came about for me wasn't even an intellectual thing. It was, I suppose, going out into the world as an adult, going to work, going to, going to travel in Latin America. Um, you know, I love, I've embraced Spanish as, as Spanish is the love of my life as a language. <laughs> and I love Latin America, P possibly because also I feel very at home there because of that kind of mixed um, history of, you know, we are, but we're not in many places. Um, and so it was sort of going through those places and being so far removed from everything I knew and that being okay, because what I knew wasn't necessarily, didn't have a firm grasp on me, but it was especially galvanized, I think, when I became a mother. Because mm. then I think possibly intellectually, but very much biologically, you think about what heritage you're giving your children. And I don't mean ethnic heritage. I mean, what culture, what are you teaching them? What food are you serving them? What what manners? In, in, in my household, my husband is French, and we have this big thing about how in, in English-speaking countries, you keep the hand you're not using under the table. But in French-speaking countries, your hand should be visible at all times. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. You know, what what are you teaching your kids? Yeah. The, 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 the minutiae of every day. Um, so that's when I think it wasn't even a question. It was almost this feral cry of who am I and what have I got to show for it in this world? And what am I giving to these? I have two girls. What am I giving to these two girls? And I think I should add it. It, it was made, perhaps it was emphasized being in France where there is such a strong identity. The French are very French. <laughs> My husband is very French. You know that we eat this way and we dress this way and this yes the world loves them because they're chic but they're chic because it's like the law here you know what i mean there's <laughs> you so, don't a have face a so no you don't how dare you mix colors i mean really how dare you not wear a coat that is beige kind of thing but because faced with that rigidity you're just like i really don't fit in here so mm. who am i and who do i want to be and who you know who am I to these children and what is my mark on the world and where is my, exactly as you said, where is my home and where is my place in the world? So more than an intellectual question, it was sort of a feral cry from the deep poetic depth of my soul that I guess I, I, I answered in part in this book, but I keep, you know, it's definitely something that I'm keeping, I keep mining uh, for who knows how long to be honest. Yeah, it seems like it's it's going to be fertile ground for a lot of years to come, you know, for, for many of us, yeah. you know, and I, I include myself in that because it's such a fascinating topic to uncover. But I love the mm -hmm. description that, that you use in terms of this awakening, this feral cry, especially when it comes to motherhood. And I imagine mm -hmm. the kind of, of, mm -hmm. of, as I said, awakening to, to a larger purpose, a, a sort of a bigger perspective. And I wonder, because I, I remember you mentioning in some podcasts that you did, uh, that you took a break from writing, that you weren't really, that you had to step away, or maybe that wasn't something that you were, that you were into. So I'm curious if that aligned with, with you becoming a parent or it, when did poetry make its way into your life? Because uh, it seemed that you had a break, a long one. 
Yes, I, I did. So I wrote, I wrote, I mean, like every angsty, heart-ridden, heartbroken teen, I wrote a lot of angsty, <laughs> terrible poetry. Um, and then I wrote poetry from traveling and, and I just sort of, yeah, journaled my way in a poetic way, but it was never anything more than that. Um, and I started a few novels and whatever. And then it definitely, I think poetry took on and um, what would it, I guess I started, no, not poetry. Poetry was always there. I guess I started to take poetry seriously when I uh, fell into a depression, basically. I think I got to the point of myself where I needed, I, it, was, it was something that was just pouring out of me because I think there is, I mean, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. You can imagine there's lots of trauma in my life just just by you know <laughs> just because of that alone and uh, so there's a lot of build-up and and i had difficult pregnancies as well and difficult so there's lots of there was lots of things there and poetry just kind of poured out of me and i i decided to take it seriously and to write it seriously and to craft it into something and learn more about it and 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 you know not just sort of vomit out onto a page for myself but really make honor the art form and honor the process of it and so that's sort of how that came about. But as many things in my life, I think everything is kind of just snowballed from birth. Kind of thing. You know what I mean? Things just happen. And that's the beauty of life, isn't it? Things happen and lead on to other things and inspire. And even the bad things, they inspire other things and you recover and they, you know, they are turned into beautiful other seeds that grow into beautiful plants. So there's there's just a constant um, thing. It's like, it's like that, that term in physics. Energy is neither, you know, created nor destroyed, but constantly turned from. It's it's exactly like that that I find, and so that's definitely what poetry in my writing is for me today. It's turning and transforming all of these things into something creative, artistic, and valuable in the world. Yeah, oh, I love that you mentioned that because it reminds me of my favorite songwriter, Jorge Drexler. He's he's South American. Mm, and, yes, uh, yes, yes. Of course, he writes. Uh, Nothing is is lost. Everything transforms. Exactly. But I wonder about your time in in Latin America, and you studied that too, right? It was that was the reason you went down there, wasn't it? Uh, you, yes, you I, was. Going, I was. I was. Yeah. I was studying uh, history and politics in Latin America. Okay. And so, so I went to work for a year in Chile and Mexico. If we could elaborate a little bit more on those kinds of discoveries, because it seemed like it opened up your world. Can we talk about perhaps literature for a moment, or maybe some inspirations that you may have picked up along the way uh, while you were down there mm -hmm. that that have impacted you? Well, those were funny because they actually um, they actually kind of surfaced years and years later. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much things had impacted me. My first collection, Cajoncito, Chile is all through those pages. There's the Andes, there's the Pacific, there's the Atacama, there's the there's like seven poems about the Raito del Sol, which is a tiny flower that only flowers for 10 days um, in the Atacama Desert. And so that all kind of just poured out by itself in a very natural way. But I, there is something about particularly the history of, of um, Chile being such a removed country from the rest of Latin America. And one of the, one of the funniest things I remember when I, I was teaching English when I was there, as well as doing some research. And I, I came in and I, I was said, sort of said something to my students about something. And the first thing they all said to me was, we don't dance. <laughs> I was like, what? But the way they looked at me, it wasn't even like, no, we don't really, we're not that kind of Latin American. They were like, don't you dare even, you know, don't just put an end to that in your mind drawn. right now, lady. We don't dance. <laughs> but it's true. They're so different from it, whether it's culturally and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, to linguistically, Chilean Spanish is the most complicated Spanish in the world to understand. Um, 
to even um, geographically and geologically, like the, 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 the country itself is so apart from even Argentina and Bolivia, you know, which are its, it's borders. Um, and that's because of, first of all, they've got the Atacama in the north, which is the driest place on earth, and the Andean, you know, the Andes. So it's geographically cut off. And if you look at the history, obviously, it's not a history podcast, but if you look at the history, even if you look at how the invasion of Latin America happened and all the, you know, the, the, the Spanish came down, et cetera, et cetera, they couldn't actually get to most of Chile for the longest time. And then the Mapuche, who were the indigenous people, fought them off really successfully for the longest time as well. So it is such an unusual in that Latin American block, that Spanish-speaking block of countries where there's so many similarities, it is such an unusual place. And it's also a place that is constantly ravaged by, you know, deadly earthquakes mm. that has had a tsunami, that had um, has had riots, has had uh, political coups that they're still recovering from, um, that has had the hands of government, you know, been passed through hands of government right and left, that has had, oh, I was there during the students' revolution. It's just a country that has suffered, you know, um, has bled and has clawed its way back repeatedly. And that shows in the people and in the culture. And that is something I think that that struck me when I was there and that I carry with me to this day. They are such a soldiering people. And um, they are such a determined people to make the best of what they have and to be proud of their country and their nation and their battles and the way they used to run from the tear gas in the streets and the way, you know, they rebuilt their house after a collapse of the sixth time. There is such a healthy pride in uh in chile that i think really informed a lot of a lot of my writing and i think i write it a lot in the form i'm obviously a poet so there's lots of metaphors in the form of the mountains the andes that stand erect and that you know will bow to no one and then the atacama that does not apologize for being the driest place on earth and too bad for you if you can't cross me kind of thing you know <laughs> so so there's definitely that it has that symbol and that that place in my artistic heart and mind that even in even in this book not quite an ocean uh even though it's less overt um i did sort of wander back to that corner of the world as well to get some of my metaphors and my images from there as well oh that's beautiful what a strong resilient people and it's it's kind resilient of a, yeah yeah before we talk about not quite an ocean which is a delightful title and i know there's a beautiful story behind that one i'd like to talk about cajoncito which is an equally beautiful title I love that word. It's it's so full of something, even though it's it's so yeah. diminutive and lovely. Yes. Uh, that that was your first collection, right? Absolutely. I'd like to sort of get a sense of of how that one came to be because it seems like once you get through the first one, then everything started pouring out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Could you share a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so Cajoncito was a, an interesting project because it was. Um, Originally, I had, as I said, I sort of came off that cusp of, of, of very shaky mental health and just, you know, lots of low feelings, let's be honest. And it was coming out of a, a place which, and I mean, I, I make no secrets about the inspiration for my, my work in that I came from a place where COVID had started. I had suffered a miscarriage. Uh, about five people in my family had died in the space of six months. Oh, there was a lot of grief. A lot of grief. Mm -hmm. I lost a very good friend through very horrible circumstances. Lots of things happened all in a small amount of time. And Caroncito was basically my processing of that. Originally, I spat out these poems and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to put them in a little book 
and I'm going to bind it myself. <laughs> I'm going to be like, this is my little cajoncito. Because the idea was something that I, I said to a friend at the time. It's like, cajoncito, for those who don't know, means little box or little drawer. Cajon, cajoncito, ito being the little, the diminutive, as you said. Um, so the idea was it was a box for all of these events and all of this grief that has a place in the world that needs to come out, but now it's in its box and we put it away. So that was kind of how I saw it. Um, and But then when I, I began to um, share my poems and send them out to magazines and, and um, you know, I'd see a magazine with a sub called about know, mountains and I had three poems about the Andes or whatever, I'd be like, hey, why not? And people started to respond um in the amazing way that people do to poetry in that i had written something about uh you know the loss of a friend and they'd been like oh my dog died and it you know that could relate to it which is wonderful because that's what poetry is it is what the reader needs you know um so so as that happened i was like well maybe i should actually do something with this and then an astonishing thing happened is that i started to write in spanish which is my fourth language so um, the poems just started to come out and I was having so much fun with it because as I say, Spanish is the love of my life. I love the sound of it. I love the, the rawness of it. I love the energy, the bounce. I love Chilean Spanish. I, there's so much I love about the language. Um, and so the poems just started coming out in Spanish. And after a while, I had the same amount of Spanish poems and English poems. And I was thinking, but how's this going to work? You know, <laughs> how do we, what do we do here kind of thing? And um, I met uh, a very talented poet and translator, Andres Piña, who's a very good friend of mine. And we ended up translating the whole thing together. So he did from English to Spanish. I did my from Spanish to English, which is a very interesting exercise, although I would not recommend it because it's hard to translate your own poetry because you know the intention and you kind of, you're too close to it to be able to actually do a literary justice. So it, I think we managed, but I wouldn't do it again. Mm. Um, and so, and then Carantito was born. It was this, this 60 page book of, of English, Spanish, and bits of French, bits of Creole, bits of Portuguese poetry. Um, and little, it's called Carantito Poems on Love, Loss y Otras Locuras. Mm. And uh, it is, I, I call it my little achy breaky. <laughs> <laughs> because it is it not not in the sense of someone left a review who's like yes it's a book all about sort of you know breaking up with the with the boyfriend or a husband or a relationship like that and it's not there's literally mm. seven thousand different types of grief in it and seven thousand different types of love and celebration and there's friendships there's mother figures there's father figures there's whole countries you know there's lots in there. Um, and so that's kind of how it came about. I'm, I'm still extraordinarily proud of it. You know, um, again, it was self-published because I really wanted creative control. It was accepted by two publishers, but they didn't want so much Spanish. They were like, no, let's keep it for an English audience, which I thought was incredibly unfair. Yeah. So I thought, no, um, I'm going to keep it as it is. There comes a point, I think, as an artist where you have to be true to the art. Um, and... And there we go. That's how it came into the world. That's phenomenal. And I'd like to pry a little bit about the translation aspect because it's so fascinating yes. to me. Was there a moment in the collection where there was a piece or a poem in, in particular that you can remember that gave you trouble, that, that you felt like it wasn't really conveying anything? Because as you said, it's one thing to have intent, but then you, you allow the other, the other individual to come in and sometimes maybe imbue something else or sometimes try to yeah. be impartial as possible was there something that gave you trouble in that collection as you translated there were there were a few times from this from the english into the spanish because again it's my fourth language 
So that's where a relationship of trust is so important with the translator. And Andres, I mean, I trust him with my eyes closed. He's, he's, he's so amazing. And often he'd be like, well, I could say this in Spanish, but it just doesn't sound very good. So I'm going to say this instead. Um, and I think there was only once that I was like, no, no, I'm keeping, I'm keeping mm. the thing that doesn't sound very good. But then afterwards I went back to him like, no, no, I think you were right. <laughs> but that would that was the odd sentence or the odd expression. Like, for example, in one of the poems there's, and it's very niche stuff. Like one of them is, uh, gorse and spider silk. Okay, gorse being a material. A material I had to look up because I needed a one-syllable material. So <laughs> I wasn't even that attached to it. And he was like, I don't know what gorse is, but I'm putting silk and something else. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. So it was often very niche things like that, you know, yeah. that don't really have that much importance. But it was harder for me because I obviously know what I wrote the first poem about, the original poem. And then I'm doing it into English now. And... I really had to do translate it, leave it for a good four or five days, yeah. come back to it, work on it again, because otherwise you're literally writing a completely different poem because you want to get, as you said, the intention, mm -hmm. but the poem is not the same. The metaphor's gone, the balance is gone, the rhythm is gone. It's not the same poem at all anymore. Um, so it was a very, very laborious and very tricky process i must say interesting one but I, as i said i'm not i would not do it again it wasn't wasn't fun enough to do it again <laughs> yeah yeah because it seems like you just have to turn your work on canny in some way by some kind of tactic exactly. like get away from it or or don't look at it exactly but I, I can imagine it being just a, a pretty intense exercise but definitely one worth doing it sounds like absolutely um. <laughs> everyone should do it once in their life once and then not again so let's talk about Not Quite an Ocean, which, uh, again, a phenomenal collection. I've read a little Thank bit you. of it as you've shared some on the podcast because I, I'm nosy and I'm just trying to get as, as many podcasts uh, <laughs> in, in as possible for, before I get to talk to you. And I, I think that you, you've done a remarkable job, from what I gather, about really articulating that metaphor so well of the mm -hmm. ocean and blending it in with motherhood and embracing that. Could you share a bit about that particular collection, its genesis, and, and maybe how you feel about it now. Okay, sure, of course. So that, that collection, it's very unusual how it came about. I've mentioned this before in that I had Cajoncito, and then I had two other projects that were around a theme. So it's very specifically, one of them's about motherhood and one of them's about Mauritius, colonial Mauritius, basically. And then I had a whole bunch of poems that were kind of out in the wild, you know, that I'd written about. One of them was like an Angela Carter magical realism-esque thing, which is my favorite poem ever written, by the way. Another one was about this vengeful storm off the coast of Chile. Like there was some really random, very valuable poems, but you know, not that didn't fit anywhere. And I had the really good luck of the being uh, contacted by the editor of Nine Pens Press, who heard that I was working on more work after Caroncito, and said, "I want to publish your next book, basically." Mm -hmm. And I mean, that doesn't come come along often in the, yeah. I think, in publishing. So I was like, <laughs> "Well, I can't, I can't let that slide, can I?" But my motherhood collection was more than a pamphlet, and I felt like it wasn't ready. Mauritian collection was too experimental. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? I need, to, I need to publish something and not just anything. So I kind of gathered all those poems together and stared at them blankly for a while. And then, I, and then as I, I went back, and I think other poets do this too, where I, I often note down like a title or a line or two lines or an image in my phone. And I went through a point where I think I was just very tired or burnt out and I didn't want to re I didn't want to create anything new. So I just went through my poem stubs and I was like, oh, let's make this into something and say, make that into something. And from there, I actually made a whole bunch of fairly decent poems, added those to the pile. And as I was looking at it, I saw 
womanhood, the ocean, rage, feminine <laughs> rage, or woman and feminine rage go together, and, and the environment. The motherhood is a funny thing because many people see motherhood in this poetry collection. Perhaps it is because I'm literally working on another collection about motherhood that I'm like, there's not yeah, that much yeah. of it in this. If you think this is motherhood, wait until you see the next one kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of it might have been influenced. I guess my response about motherhood might have been about the podcast because you, you kind of mention a lot of those things because it's such a huge part of your life that I, I thought, well, maybe that could be a, a, a huge aspect of it. No, it yeah. is. It is. It must be in there because, I mean, it, it's, it's been mentioned by a few people. I'm not, you know, and it's not, <laughs> not an issue that, that is. But it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily what I saw, you know. Right. Um, and so from there, I just kind of organized the poems as best I could and played around with them until they seemed to be happy with their, you know, playmates. Um, <laughs> and and there we go. And that's and that's where the that's where the collection came from, really. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I. Because it wasn't, because it came about in a such an um, unusual way, I was very afraid that it would kind of be like, oh, here's a whole bunch of poems, I don't have a home, there you go. You know? yeah. But I'm actually extremely proud of it. And I've read it now, you know, months after sending out the, 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 the manuscript to the, obviously the editor like what, last year, read it again as a, as a whole collection. And I'm very proud of it. Objectively, I think it's I think it's a, I think it's a good pamphlet, and it's the kind of pamphlet I would enjoy reading. Um, so I think that's saying something when you can remove yourself so far from the poetry that you actually think, oh, this is actually I'm enjoying this. This is actually quite good. Then that's very satisfying as a writer because it no longer holds the personal value to you. It just holds literary value. Um, so yeah. you know, I'm very very proud of it. Yeah, for sure. That that is the goal, right? That is the ideal where you get to the point where maybe a couple of years down the road you don't recognize yourself in it because it's so exactly. much of its own its own thing. It has its own journey. And that leads yeah. me to ask you, I mean, I want to ask you about motherhood and I want to ask you about I don't know if you use Google Keep, but just notes, right? You use you use uh-huh. those a lot in your process. But my main concern here, or not concern, but thing that I want to ask you is is about creative fortitude. Uh and finding mm-hmm. the the strength to go beyond, and I think you've you've mentioned it. A lot of us who have kids who have other things going on in life, there are so many things at our heels to get our attention. And you have managed to write consistently. You have two kids. I only have the one, and I I don't know what to do sometimes, you know. <laughs> but but to to have that kind of momentum built in, mm. do you feel that it is that kind of 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 cry that is still lingering from when you when you first started going in this direction or or how do you maintain that that is such that is such a good question and in fact it's something that i'm i'm also going to be doing workshops on 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 goal setting and sustainable creative practice um because i also like a lot of us creatives i have adhd and i'm severely dyslexic so there's also the element of ooh a project, you know, <laughs> ooh another project. So yeah. so there's also that. Let's not lie, you know. Um, I am. Uh, I have two kids. I homeschool my kids too, so they're always with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely th- there is a need in me, just like and when I explain it, for example, my husband is not very literary, but I explain it to me. He's very athletic. I say it's like you need to exercise. You need to go out and have a run. I need to be creative. It makes me a better mother. It makes me a better person. It makes me a better wife. It makes me a better just to be around because it is part of me that needs to express itself. Now, I also hold very closely to Joni Mitchell's um, concept of crop rotation. 
because I think like most people like me with ADHD, I'm creative in different areas. I write poetry, I write short fiction, I have my workshops, I'm a teacher. I also write novels, kid lit, I also do craft, like there's lots of little things. So there comes a point where um, you, for example, right now I've published this book, I've promoted it quite aggressively is the only way to, to, to express it. And I'm a little bit, you know, right now the poems aren't flowing out of me. Let's be honest, they're not. I wrote a few recently in Mauritius, but I'm not on a roll to resubmit and get into that straight away. However, I am working on my novel, Like There's No Tomorrow, because for some reason that has suddenly, you know, started pouring out of me. So I'm leaning into that all the way. So we kind of crop rotate. It's the same way. You plant your field of carrots and you let it grow and you tend to your barley and you mm. let that grow and then you tend to the watercress. And that is exactly how I see it. And for me, that is the most sustainable practice. And one thing I've seen with my children as not just a mother, but a homeschool mom. So I repeat, they're always with me, these kids. I'm never <laughs> alone. Is that it's good for them to see, especially because I have girls and I'm a woman, that they see that my pursuits are worth pursuing and that they see right now, mommy's writing. Mommy's writing and it's important to her so that when they then go on to, to dance, to be engineers, to start writing comics, whatever it is that they, whatever, they feel the legitimacy of pursuing that and that it is important for them and that not everything has to be um, um, in pursuit of capitalism, in pursuit of being paid or in pursuit of, you know, whatever it is. I mean, if we're paid, let's let's be honest now, no one's saying no to that, <laughs> but that, that, that their pursuits and their passions are legitimate and are part of who they are and um, are just as worthy as whatever other pursuit, you know, could be seen, could be seen, you know, by anyone else or anyone else's opinion on, on any other pursuit. And it's a tricky thing, I think, especially as a mother, because there's so much guilt and there's oh, so yeah. much um, expectation, you know, you need to work like you don't have kids and, and parents like you don't have work and this and that and the other. Um, and there comes a point where you're like, no, I just need to love my children and do my best. And that's what I, that's my message to them. I'm doing my best for you. I'm spending the time that you need, you know, with you. I'm loving you. I'm there for you. But I'm also there for me. And I'm there for my husband and I'm there for my cat. And I'm there for my, my church community and I'm there for my friends. You know what I mean? I'm there for those who need me because because we are multifaceted creatures. But this part of me, I, I'm also there for that the creative part of my person, I'm also showing up for her. Um, and that's really essential. Um, building on from that, there are also, I think, practical steps, especially as parents, maybe that that I will put together, as I mentioned, into workshops for the future, because I really think it is helpful for people. And we can get very burnt out with, with what burns us out is not the creativity. I don't think creativity is ever draining. It is everything around it. It's finding the time to write. Mm -hmm. It's balancing that with other things. It's promoting yourself. It's, or every, you know, social media, making sure that you have a presence, your author branding, your new, all of this stuff is so exhausting. But the actual creation, Jaime, that is, it's that, that is, it's liberating, yeah, it's yeah. energizing, you know what I mean? Nothing is more energizing than, it's like energy, it, it transforms into more energy. So I think there are also practical ways in which we can make our lives a bit easier. Um, which I will be looking at, obviously, I'll, I'll let you know, obviously, on email, on social media, when those things are launched. But I really think that it's something that creatives can benefit from. I know I would have benefited from being told that, you know, when I started out kind of thing. I'm, I feel like I've rambled away from your question, have I? No, this is lovely because I I love, you know, passing the floor to you because I, I think that there's there's so much that you're passionate about. And in particular, the modeling aspect, it might be the biggest lesson for any parent creative. 
Um, you know, I come from a family of musicians and, and hardworking oh, women, wonderful. raised by a lot of women. But I noticed mm-hmm. something that you touched on that, that is so powerful, which is women, some, some women, and I'm just speaking from my personal experience of, of some of the women that I've known who've raised me, who I love dearly, mm-hmm. felt mm-hmm. like they needed to set aside their life and their joy and their mm-hmm. purpose mm-hmm. in service of everyone else in the family. Yeah. And, and what an empowering thing to say. And empowering is such a tired word that I, I'm trying not to no, use. No, but I know what but, you mean. But it is that feeling that, look, this, this woman has an aspect of nourishment that belongs to mm. her and her alone, you know. And, and I mm. think that it is a lesson for everyone, you know, and, and it extends yeah. to, to all kinds of people. But I just want to applaud you for that and, and thank you for that, thank uh, you. that honesty because it is one of the greatest lessons that, that we could ever pass on. We can't stop, you know, and even if we could, we would be miserable. And uh, from personal experience. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think yeah. that's the proof of it. Yeah, that's the proof of it is that when you stop, you are miserable. And, and I think that, I think that, that, you know, something has been given to each one of us in this world. Some of us are artists, some of us are athletes, some of us are, are problem solvers, some of us are, are compa- you know, with so many of us. And I think that that is not by mistake. And that is something that we need to honor. Um, and obviously, everyone's life is different. Everyone's schedule is different. But if it has been put inside of you, then there is a way to make it work. And I, I am convinced of that, you know. Maybe we won't get the way perfectly straight away. There will be bumps and tumbles and scraped knees as we learn how to, you know, manage our lives. But it is possible. Absolutely possible. Yeah, yeah. This is just wonderful. And I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time. But I want to linger for just a little bit moment on this this metaphor of the garden, right? You're tending your garden of creativity and you have your poetry, which is the carrot. And then maybe over here, you go to yeah. another vegetable, which might be the longer, uh, the, mm-hmm. I guess the long gestating works, like say a novel yeah. or, or maybe fiction. What do you get out of those things that, that poetry doesn't provide? Or, or what, what is it that shifts in you that allows you to go into the longer form um, that, that is nourishing? That is a fascinating question, Jaime. <laughs> I have no idea. You flummoxed me. Okay, so I think part of it, I think part of it, I'm a quick thinker, you see. <laughs> I think part of it is, <laughs> is that you, um, is just burnout. It must be said like, okay, I've been promoting my poetry book that I love and that I'm proud of, but that's okay now, you know. Now yeah, I, I kind of yeah. just need to do something else. It's like eating soup for a month after a while you want a steak. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Um, so I think that is a part of it. I'm not going to lie. Um, and then I think also uh, in my case, um, there comes a point where my, perhaps it's an ADHD related thing, but suddenly my focus and almost my mood shifts. The novel I'm writing at the moment is a Gothic retelling of an, of an 18th century book. So Victorian England, um, it's Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South. So it's, it's a retelling for now, but it might actually shift to a whole nother universe later. I don't know, but that's what I'm writing at the moment. And it's, and something in me i think after writing poetry and things that are very close to me and personal i guess craves escape into a whole nother world because even though uh, in my book not quite an ocean there are poems which are narrative and you know you're in a haunted forest or you're in caught in the eye of a storm in south america i still know what it's about so <laughs> it's never gonna be fully um you know that escape for me it's always going to be I, I can always see myself in it, um, even though no one else might. Whereas in fiction, or at least my novel length fiction, um, there is that I am in that world, that universe. 
you know, my sister is also a writer. In fact, she writes young adults, very successful writer. And she um, she more so lives in those, that world all the time. She was Since she was tiny, she's been telling herself stories. And she, a bit like Tolkien, she, she creates universes and disappears <laughs> into them. And so every so often kind of I crave that. And so that's what I will do with my novels. And then for my children's books as well, I think more than anything that will probably be inspired by something that's happening in my life or I'll go and travel to a place and I'll be like, oh, I need to, you know, document the history of this into something that how would I how would I present it to my children? I'm a teacher, uh, an academic teacher um, by trade. So I always, I think, have that antenna on as well in terms of how and a homeschooling mom now. So how would I break this down for a kid? You know, how would I present it? So there's a lot, a lot of that. And then obviously the crafts that aren't writing related, my theater, my craft work, physical things, those are also often just because I crave doing something physical and I crave something that is mind, mindless, you know, that you're not really thinking too much. Um, so I'm not sure if that is at all a decent answer to your question, but that's the best I can think of. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a perfect answer to the question. And I'm just going to pray for a moment. Tell me about theater for a little bit. As a theater person, I'm always intrigued. I'm always okay. So, <laughs> so theater, theater. I uh, it's nothing glamorous at the moment. I coach a local theater group for my church, basically. Oh, that's awesome. And um, but that's not an unfortunate one. Yes, un- unfortunately, in the sense that um, our program with coronavirus and with many things has been so uh, packed that we haven't been able to do half, even a oh, quarter of what we wanted to do. But the the skits and the sketches and the full length plays are being written <laughs> in my head <laughs> and are being mapped out and being discussed and hashed out all the time. Oh, that's beautiful. So, um, so there's a lot, a lot of that. Um, and even just now, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing. But yeah, I think when you have a creative brain, you can't help it. My daughters are a bit obsessed with the Prince of Egypt at the moment, <laughs> and so we're listening to the to the musical, you know. And you must know how I am already like blocking the scene on the yeah, stage yeah. and thinking, oh, we could do this really artistic, <laughs> you know, like abstract version of the, the, the Red Sea. And so I think that never really switches off, you know. Um, but I love I love the theater. I love musical theater. Um, but as I said, I haven't I haven't I know that a time will come in my life, whether it's with whether it's sort of with the group that I'm coaching or, or maybe with my own plays or I don't know, but where I will definitely pursue that more actively because it is something that I love and that I, I never studied. So I don't really know much about beyond my pleasure of, you know, reading and keeping up with what's happening in the theater world. But no, definitely it's, it's, it's something that I love and that one day in my life, I do want to, to be more involved in. Uh, so two more things from that question. Okay. So I, yes. I have to say your, your kids have good taste because the Prince of Egypt might be one of the best scores ever written. It's amazing. Uh, it's, it's, it's gorgeous, so good. lush and, and incredible. And I cry sometimes, you know, because it's, it's amazing. Oh, me too, still. Second, um, I was going to ask you about just this idea of what you're looking forward to in the, in the future, because there's a lot that, that you kind of have going on. And I'm curious of what the next steps are for you outside of the novel. What is it that you're working mm-hmm. on right now for your craft mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. that you think is a priority? Well, um, there's a few things. Um, I unfortunately I had to rush back home to Mauritius for a family emergency f- mm. in August. So I had the Sealy challenge planned out, and I basically picked up two books. So I've got a nice pile that I need to work my way through, and I'm working my way through in a very mindful way. I'm actually like highlighting and illustrating and being like, because I want to improve my craft as much as possible. They can get to a point where you know I've done a whole bunch of workshops and I've read about 700 books and I, and I, and I've done online courses but you can become very complacent and I don't want to, I really want to push myself more, especially 
to experiment more and and yeah to really you know push my writing more in poetry and not be stagnant um i'm so sorry forgive me people are sending me messages um and so and so uh, that's definitely something i will do on my own time um i'm focusing writing wise i'm definitely focusing on my novel although every so often i'm sort of dabbling in a bit of short fiction there's a big short fiction co- competition coming up and i have promised myself i will have something ready for it i'm actually writing in a genre that <laughs> i very pretentiously i'm saying that i invented <laughs> <but> it's <laughs> tropical, tropical gothic basically it's oh, it's gothic things happening in a in a tropical setting you know in mauritius and places like that with dilapidated houses and and something that might be supernatural but it's not actually in the end it's explained you know what i mean that sort of thing and uh, and I'd like to submit some of that work because those are the stories that are in my head and I don't know why I haven't written them so far. Um, so watch that space. And then um, the other thing I'm very excited about, but I do, I think, need to recover a little bit artistically before I really put all of my heart and soul into them are what I mentioned, the workshops and the classes on, um, you know, I, I don't have an MFA. I know that's a big deal in America or a, a degree in writing at all in creative writing. But I do, I have learned a lot. And so although I'm not in a position to teach about, you know, form or anything like that, I am in a position to teach about social media relations, about author branding, about sustainable goals, about avoiding burnout, uh, promoting your book. So I'm looking to put together maybe some uh, workshops that would be live and even maybe some um, recorded videos that people could download or guides, you know, some sort of formats that could maybe guide people that they could buy or borrow. I'm not really sure. I'm working on the details at the moment, but definitely next year, that's something that I will be working on, offering to writers and creatives, not just poets, um, anybody who's sort of an indie creative of any sort who needs a little bit of help balancing their creative life and their goals with everything else they've got going on. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And I'm I'm really grateful for that because one of the one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as well was this drive to be true and not be held up by the the conventions of oh you got to be a, a certified poet mm. of arts or whatever and yeah. something that haunts me and that I try to rail against because of course you've done a, a phenomenal job of building something that is that is true to you and you're you're not censoring yourself just because you know of some degree or something like that and so I really applaud you and it's very inspiring for me so um, one you. last question. And then I'll let mm-hmm. you enjoy your Sunday or Monday. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> I'm, it's, it's, still, it's still Sunday. I'm not in a rush, though, Jaime. Okay. You can talk as long as you like. Yeah, yeah. But this this last one here, uh, I'm curious if there is a work that inspired you to write when you were younger and something that really inspired you recently, if you could share some works. Gosh, you kept that you kept the tough one for last, didn't you? My there, goodness. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot okay. Of <laughs> Okay, so I think definitely if we're talking about poetry, um, it might seem a bit incongruous, but Edward Lear was a Victorian, um, you you know, yes, the Owl and the Pussycat, of Uh course. So he actually wrote, obviously, the Owl and the Pussycat and longer poems like that. But he was also famous for his books of nonsense, which are exactly that. They're they're books of rhyming nonsense and limericks (laughs) and all sorts. And I love them. I can recite them to this day. And he was also an illustrator. In fact, he was an illustrator before he was a, a writer. And I love it. I love, I love the, I think that's where I, I, I'd learned to love the, the rhythm of language and the, and the melody of language and the, 
the fact that things don't need to make sense to be enjoyable as well, <laughs> which is a key a key concept in poetry, isn't it? If we're honest, um, so so definitely that, um, and yeah, I would definitely that, and then. Recently, my goodness, the amount of things I have read. I recently read J.P. Seabright's Abyssidarian called Trauma. She's amazing. She's an experimental poet. And I mean, oh, she's just fantastic. And she's a good friend of mine as well. Nikki Dudley also has a really good collection that is being republished um, about dementia. Again, it's experimental. I loved, um, oh, what was the one that I, I read? Um, one book I really enjoyed was A Stovetop Ghost by um, Katie Naylor. She's a very fantastic poet. Womb World, which was actually nominated for awards by Lisa B. Molina. Mm. Heart-wrenching. I have a nephew who has got a, a serious health condition. And any, but it's even if you're not a parent, I, I mean, I defy you not to be sobbing like a child by the end of that book. Um, I'm really enjoying lots of work by, from Gilmot Press. Their covers, I mean, even before you open the book, their covers are just a thing. You almost don't want to open it. You know, it's like a cake that's so beautiful, you don't use it. They're so beautiful. They're all over my social media, so you can find them. Um, La Mystérique is one of them. A beautiful book as well. And the Emma Press, who are a small northern press in the UK who do children's books and uh, pamphlets. And they're run by... Um, I think a group of women, in fact, because they, they also publish a lot about motherhood, parenting, uh, women's health issues. And all of their books are just a work of art from beginning to end. They just put such heart into it. Um, and another one is the Ethelzine, who I don't know if you've seen them on social media. Everything yeah. is hand sewn. Yeah. That's gorgeous. I mean, what is that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who, yeah. Who, who has the time? But evidently <laughs> they do. And, and it's and it's so beautiful and you hold it in your hands and it's a work of art and you open it every page they clearly are also so discerning in their in their selections of what they publish because every page is sumptuous poetry um everything that i've, I've had from them was amazing so i mean those are some i mean there's so many because i read i read a lot a lot of other people's poetry sakshi narula too she has a new book called bad poetry out which i love and she did this incredibly boss thing where she actually the cover is her face <laughs> that's amazing that we should all do that. that like yeah yeah but i love it she's just going you know what i mean she comes out swinging I lo and it's her poems are are sumptuous and and rich and just overflowing and it's like it's like it's just amazing it's like an overflowing cup of honey and nectar and wine it's just it's so good it's so so good so yeah no, i love them if you want to know what i'm reading what i recommend follow me on social media it's all there perfect Perfect. And I think that's a wonderful note to end on, even though we've just scratched the surface. Elizabeth, this has been such a pleasure and uh, want to thank you for taking the time to do this on a Sunday, but also for your beautiful writing and your resilience and your intensity to embrace the calling, embrace your art and, and really leading the way in that regard. It's It's been incredibly inspiring to me and I, I do hope that we get to chat again sometime because i want to learn about your pen names i want to learn about tropical gothic a little bit more i you know there's just so much more so i hope that we get to catch up down the road and uh and pick up where we left off i hope so too jaime this has been such a pleasure as well thank you so much for having me and we'll stay connected on social media anyone else who's listening can find me i'm at emc writes poetry on uh, instagram twitter and TikTok, although I don't know what I'm doing on TikTok, so I don't have to follow me there. But thank you. This was so much fun. Wonderful. Well, you have a lovely Sunday, and I'll be in touch on the internet, okay? Okay, you too. Thanks, Jaime. Take care. You too. Take care.
Bye. Bye.